Please turn in your Bibles to John, or I'm sorry, not John, Jonah chapter number 4. I'm so used to saying John over the past couple months. Jonah, John almost <laughs> sounds similar enough, so Jonah chapter number 4, if you will. Again, I mentioned this in Sunday school. Whenever we talk about Jonah, we often use the phrase Jonah and the... Yet the whale is only mentioned in four short sentences. So the whale is not the thing in the book of Jonah, but there's a different message that God wants us to get. A deeper message, if we could say. And so, Jonah chapter 4 gives us the filter in which the rest of the book of Jonah is to be interpreted through and understood through. So, if we get Jonah chapter 4, it makes the rest of the book make sense. And I think we'll see that here this morning. So let's go ahead and begin in verse number 1 of Jonah chapter number 4. The Bible says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. What was he so angry about? Well, in the verses before, a whole city repents. Uh, Brother Marshall, I don't think he'd be upset if St. Joseph as a whole repented. <laughs> Shocked perhaps, but you know, not upset, not angry about it. Verse 2, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? But he doesn't answer a word. Instead, in verse 5, it says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. The exact opposite reaction of verse number 1. But God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? And that's the story. Well, how about we ask God to help us out, and we'll get right into it this morning. Lord, again, we need your help. We are grateful for the privilege that we have to be in church for the privilege we have to gather around your word and see the things which you have to say to us. Lord, we pray that you'd be present in the service. 
We pray that Your Word would be lifted up. And Lord, that we would understand what Your Word is saying. And then, Lord, that we would have the courage to obey. We pray that You'd be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In April of 1995, there was two men filled with hate and filled with rage loaded a rider-moving truck with 4,800 pounds of homemade explosives. Around 9 o'clock one morning, one of the men parked the truck in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Shortly after 9 o'clock, the explosives were detonated And at least for people in that part of the country, life has really never been the same ever since. 168 people were killed, and more than 680 people were injured in the blast. 19 children were killed, 15 of whom were a part of the America's Kids Daycare Center that was located on the second floor of the building. I used to work with the son of the fireman who first stumbled on the daycare on that day, The last time I saw Mr. Williams, he told me that he had still not had a good night's rest ever since that day. Later on, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols later referred to the deaths of the children specifically as merely collateral damage for their cause. Collateral damage. Can I just say that that's hard to wrap our minds around? How could anybody become so wicked, so evil, so vile, so angry that they would refer to the deaths of children and then deaths in that horrific of a fashion, refer to that as merely collateral damage. It's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? And yet, there's a question that I think that needs to be asked out of every person here and really out of Christians all over the world. And the question is this, should people, men and women like Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, people like them, should they receive an opportunity to receive God's grace and God's mercy? Now we know what the theological answer is, absolutely. But what answer does our flesh give? It's a much harder sell, isn't it? Now, I think we can say on pretty good authority that if we were to ask Jonah what should be done, if we were to ask Jonah that same question, he would say, absolutely not. There's no way that people like that, with all of their evil, with all of their wickedness, with all of their anger, there's no way that they should receive an opportunity to receive God's grace and God's mercy. Say, well, how do we know what Jonah would say? Well, we can say what Jonah said based on what he did. Because God called Jonah to go to a people that were also wicked, vile, angry, and infamous in world history for the psychological warfare that they inflicted on the people that they conquered. God called them to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Again, an empire that was infamous in world history. But as we saw in Sunday school, that begins a backwards narrative. Because what happens? As soon as God calls him to go, Jonah goes in the opposite direction. And he goes down into a boat on the way to Tarshish, the other end of the known world at that time. Anything to get away from going to the people that God had called him to go to. 
And then we find him as he goes to sleep. And then while he's asleep, God sends a storm. And of course, we understand that Jonah's the reason for the storm. Of course, God is the source. But Jonah's asleep while the pagan sailors are praying. And then, of course, we know that they wake him up and they find out again that he's the reason for it. And Jonah says, ah, just throw me overboard. Again, a deliberate attempt to commit suicide than going to the people that God had called him to go to. So the men, they rode harder and harder. They didn't want to throw him overboard, but they could not make any progress. So they threw him overboard, and of course we know that the sea was calmed. The storm was calmed whenever Jonah hit the water. And then it says that these pagan sailors, then they feared the Lord, and they gave an offering to the Lord. Meanwhile, Jonah still doesn't fear the Lord. And as Jonah goes over the boat, as he goes into the depths of the sea, we would think certain death. But God prepares a fish. And then it gets even better. What is it that we find happens inside of the great fish? Well, we would think that he would die. But inside the great fish, we find Jonah crafting this great, elaborate, sophisticated Hebrew poetry. Exactly what I would be doing in his shoes. Of course, you know, if you read chapter 2, chapter 2 is weird. I'm just going to be real honest with you. It's weird. It almost reminds me of some of the sermons that Job's friends had given him over in the book of Job where he says a lot of good and a lot of flowery things, but there's never any repentance. Never any repentance. But God in His grace commands the fish to spit up Jonah up on the shore and Jonah has the opportunity once again to obey and he does, sort of. Sort of. I believe there are no unimportant details in God's Word. And again, as we learned, chapter 4 gives us the filter in which the rest of the book is to be interpreted. So according to chapter 4, because of the hatred and the bigotry of Jonah, everything that he does ought to be looked at in a skeptical light. Every decision he makes. And so there's a detail given in chapter 3 where Nineveh is a great city of three days' journey. But it says that Jonah went a day's journey. Now, again, I've heard it preached many times that that means that Jonah went right to the town square and then let her fly and just preach the word of God. Is that really what happened? Again, if we're supposed to look at this in a skeptical light, did he really go that far? Or did he just go partway in? And then find a random little storefront. And then gave the most unusual message in the entire Bible. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Peace out. See you later. And he goes on his way. Now, again, that sermon should strike us as being strange for several reasons. Number one, it's eight words. He obviously was not a Baptist preacher. So there's no way. So it was eight words. And in that message, not one time does he mention God. Not one time does he mention why God is upset with the Ninevites. And then he never offers them an opportunity to repent. And as a matter of fact, it's the only time in the entire Bible in which a message of judgment is given without the opportunity for repentance given. And so some people said, well, surely he said more than that. Did he? 
We can only go by based on what the text actually says. And based on what the text actually says, it clearly looks like the man of God was deliberately attempting to sabotage the message of God. It certainly appears that way. But we find out something. That God's message is always more powerful than His messenger. Because what happens? The whole city hears about it and they repent. And then word gets to the most powerful man in the world at that time. The king of Nineveh. The king of the Assyrian Empire. What would we expect him to do? Well, he would probably squash Joan on the spot for giving a message like that. But no. He repents. And he calls for the whole city to repent. And then in chapter 3, verse number 8, even for the cows to repent. That's a bit extreme. But then, there's a sad verse when we come to chapter 3, verse number 9. When the king of Nineveh says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell? There was somebody who knew the answer to that. And that was Jonah. And so that leads us into chapter 4. And what chapter 4 is, is a contrast between the love and grace of God and the anger and hatred of Jonah. And so in the first four verses, we're first going to find that Jonah is angry because God's actions were consistent with his character. So in verse 1, we saw Jonah's angry because the city repents. But then notice verse number 2. He says, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before to Tarshish. Jonah says, I knew this is what was going to happen. I knew it. That's why I ran away. I knew that if I went there and preached your message, if they happen to repent, that you just couldn't help yourself but to forgive them. That's why I ran away. And then he goes on to quote the most quoted verses of the Bible within the Bible. Do you know the Bible quotes itself occasionally? The most quoted verses of the Bible within the Bible is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which is a dissertation on the character of God. So, and every good Jewish boy and girl would have known that like the back of their hand. And so he begins to quote it right back at God right here. He said, notice what he says, For I knew that thou art a gracious God. Are you thankful for God's grace in your life? Oh, listen very carefully. Jonah had been the recipient of God's grace. It was God's grace that he even was one of the children of Israel and had known what God's law required out of them. It was God's grace that he was a prophet and a man of God. God's grace that when he ran away, that God didn't zap him right there on the spot. God's grace that when he was thrown overboard, that God prepared a fish. God's grace that kept him alive in the fish. God's grace that got him out of the fish. God's grace that gave him an opportunity to obey once again and go to Nineveh. God's grace had been all over Jonah's life. Then it says, and merciful. Are you thankful for God's mercy? Oh, God is certainly merciful to each and every one of us. Slow to anger. You know what that phrase, slow to anger, means? It means it takes a long time for God's anger to heat up. Isn't the Bible complicated? But listen very carefully. None of us would be here if God wasn't slow to anger. Jonah would not have been there if God wasn't slow to anger. 
Oh, goodness. And then it says, and of great kindness, God shows us kindness and favor that none of us deserve. And then it says, and repentest thee of the evil. So Jonah says, God, that's my problem. You're some cosmic pushover that just can't help but forgive sinners when they repent. And guess what? To that, we should say, praise God. Because if you're saved, there was a day that you repented and a day that I repented. And listen, teens, you heard this at camp. In the Bible, when men and women get on their knees and repent, God does have a consistent and reliable response. He gives them all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his grace, even all of himself to the truly repentant. And to that, we should say, praise God. Listen very carefully. If there's somebody here that you're not saved, listen very carefully. If you will repent, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. We can trust that because that is what God has done over and over and over again in His Word. And you can walk around this room and talk to people that have gotten saved, that have repented, and say, did God truly forgive you? And you can say, oh, listen very carefully. I was passed from death unto life. Oh, God has been good. But Jonah says, God, that's my problem. I'm so thankful for all the benefits that you've given me in my life. I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful for your mercy. I'm so thankful you're slow to anger. I'm so thankful for your great kindness. I'm so thankful for all of it. But there's a group of people that I've already decided are not worthy of the same spiritual benefits that I've received. And so his response is this. It's better for me to die than to live. Listen very carefully. Jonah couldn't stand to live in a world in which God loved his enemies as much as God loved him. And so God says, doest thou well to be angry, Jonah? And he doesn't answer a word. Instead, in verses 5 and 8, we find that he's going to go outside the city. And we're going to find that Jonah's now going to be angry because God takes away his one source of comfort. So he goes outside the city. (laughs) And then, you know, just in case God changes his mind. Because apparently, according to Jonah, God's infamous for doing that. So he goes up there and God, in his grace, prepares a gourd to come up over the head of Jonah. Now, that gourd, that plant, is intended to be an object lesson to Jonah about Jonah. To show Jonah how wicked he really is. Because what happens as soon as God takes it away? It's better for me to die than to live. Really? Now, listen very carefully. I grew up working on a Christmas tree farm, and I like plants like the next guy. But not like this. He's crying and throwing a temper tantrum over a plant, over just a little, bit of, a little bit of sunshine over his head. And now he just can't stand to live anymore. And before we pick on Jonah too much, when God starts to pick at us a little bit and starts to get us out of our comfort zone, we tend to throw temper tantrums too, don't we? But really that leads us to the last couple of verses, which really just shows that Jonah's angry because... He doesn't love who God loves. Which, by the way, is everybody. So God begins to pick at Jonah and expose it a little bit. He says, Jonah, you've had pity on a gourd 
for the, which you had nothing to do with. And by the way, anything good in your life is not the result of you, but the result of a good and gracious God to you. But as soon as God takes it away, is God still worth it? I've heard it said before, I, I do not remember where I heard this. But listen very carefully. If God were to take away the padded pews, if God were to take away the air conditioning, if God were to take away the nice building, is His Word and is His goodness and is His glory enough for God's people to still come together and serve Him? It ought to be. But with Jonah, it wasn't. God takes away His one source and then God begins to pick at it. Jonah, you've, I took away one source of comfort and you've lost your mind. You've had pity on a plant. But Jonah, what about the people? What about the people there in Nineveh? And then God begins to talk about how it's, a, it's the, pe- the people there that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. There's a lot of debate about what that means. It could mean that it's referring to children. That, you know, Jonah doesn't even have compassion on the children in Nineveh. It's, I've heard other people say it's referring to the fact that the Ninevites didn't have the law of God like Israel did. Whatever the case, the application is the same. Jonah doesn't love people. Or the cattle, apparently, because they're mentioned too. After all, they repented, so God should forgive them too. I don't know why God throws it in there, but I had to bring it up. And that's the story. So what in the world are we supposed to do with that? I studied the book of Jonah for several years. And as I studied it, you know, I found it's really easy to pick on Jonah. You know, isn't it? And we've done that a little bit this morning, haven't we? Jonah, how could you think like that? How could you have that mindset? How can you become that carnal? How can... How can you become that selfish? How can you be that consumed with your comfort? How can you do that? And then after studying, it's like the finger gets pointed right back at us and says, yes, how could you? It's almost like whenever David commits sin with Bathsheba and he did his best to cover it up, but then God sent the prophet Nathan unto him. And Nathan told him a little story about how there was a rich man had lots of sheep, but then there was the poor man had that one sheep and really loved that one sheep. One day the rich man had a visitor, had to feed that visitor, so he took the poor man's sheep, killed it, and fed his visitor. Of course, David was enraged and said, the man who has done this will surely die. And what is it that Nathan said? Yes, David, thou art the man. And again, as I've studied the book of Jonah, I find out it's less of a story about Jonah as much as it's a story about me and my problems and my mindsets and where I am corrupt in my thinking. And where I feel like I have a monopoly on God's grace. Say, well, what do you mean, Brother Zach? There is an unreached people group right here in the United States of America. One that is perhaps an intentionally unreached people group. Say, well, who is it? Are we okay with God loving our enemies? Further yet, are we okay with God asking us to love our enemies? Because if we love our enemies the way that God's word commands us to, then we're going to do everything we can to reach them. Listen, every single person here has been hurt by somebody. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker, a boss. It could be that it was a friend that stabbed you in the back. Or it could simply be that we've been offended by a group we've seen on TV. 
perhaps a nation that's invaded another nation for apparently no, no good reason. Either way, most people had that one group. Most of God's children had that one group, or at least that one individual, that if God were to say, I want you to go reach them, we'd say, eh, I don't know about that, God. Are you sure you want me to go reach them? Are you sure? Well, newsflash, God has commanded us to go reach them. Are we mindful that the God's Word says that we're supposed to go and preach the gospel to every creature? Guess who's included in every creature? Not just those that we like, but especially those that we don't like. Have we forgotten the fact that there was a time in which we were the enemies of God? In which we, because of our sin, were separated from God and deserve every bit of His wrath and judgment. But what did God do for us? He came down and lived a perfect and sinless life, died on a cruel cross, was buried and rose again three days later. And He did that for those who were His enemies. Oh, but sometimes we can feel like we have a monopoly on God's grace. Where we can say, I'm so thankful like Jonah. I'm so thankful for the benefits I've received in my life. I'm so thankful for God's love. I'm so thankful for God's grace. I'm so thankful for His mercy. I'm so thankful He's been slow to anger. I'm so thankful for all of that. But there's a group of people that I've decided are not worthy of the same benefits that I've received. And perhaps like Jonah, there's an individual or a group of people that we perhaps couldn't stand to live in a world in which God loves them as much as God loves us. Now, now listen very carefully. That's horrible. Because we were worthy of all the judgment of God. It wasn't just their sin that put Him on the cross, it was my sin. And it's high time that we stop thinking of ourselves as good sinners in trouble with a bad God. But I understand that every single one of us were incredibly wicked and vile sinners who deserved all the judgment and wrath of a good and holy God. And so our sin is no worse than someone else's. And God has commanded us to reach even our enemies. But you know, even not just reaching those that we don't like, we have a hard enough time reaching those we do like. Don't we? We have a hard enough time going across the street talking to the neighbors we do tend to tolerate. Uh, talking to the co-workers we do get along with more than others. Uh, talking to the family members we do tend to be okay with seeing once a year at Thanksgiving. We have a hard enough time reaching them. But listen very carefully. God has commanded us to both reach those that we do like and especially those that we don't like. I can't think of a more Christ-like thing then for, if somebody has hurt you, then for you to go and share God's grace and God's love with that individual. I can't think of a more Christ-like thing. And by the way, He's commanded us to do it. I think I told this story at camp. There was, about, there was an atheist comedian who did everything he could to disprove Christianity. And he had made the statement that he had read the Bible from cover to cover. And he said, there's no way you all believe that's true. No way. He said, I've read it. I've read what the Bible says is coming. I've read about the judgment of sin. I've read about the lake of fire. I've read about all that. But I've also read about Jesus and his love. And about what he did for me on the cross. About heaven that's awaiting me whenever I die, if I accept him. I said, I've read all that. He said, there's no way you believe that's true. He said, because if a truly sane person believed that was true... He said, well, I would crawl on my belly. I would walk on hot coals, which, again, by the way, I'm not advocating. 
But he said, I would do everything I could to tell everybody I could, and I wouldn't care what they did to me. And I wouldn't care what they said to me. I wouldn't care how they mocked me. Because it really doesn't matter. And then he said this. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe every word of God is true and then not say a word? And yet we've gotten pretty good at it, haven't we? At the beginning, I mentioned about the Oklahoma City bombing. There was a grandmother that had two grandchildren killed in that blast. And her testimony is that for years she dealt with anger, bitterness, even hatred over what had happened, especially about what was said to her, said about her grandchildren. And you know what? I think all of us in here, we can kind of understand it. But her testimony is that whenever Timothy McVeigh was executed, she learned it didn't change anything in here. So she knew what she had to do. She began to correspond with Terry Nichols, the other bomber. She began to write him letters, even have one-on-one meetings with him. Her testimony is that the purpose of those meetings was not to bash him, not to say, how could you do that to my grandchildren, and then refer to them as collateral damage. She said, no, the entire purpose of those meetings was to show God's love, to show God's mercy, and to show God's grace with one of the individuals that had hurt her the most in her life. And her testimony is that she led him to the Lord. Now, did he ever get saved? I I don't know. I don't know. But her reaction was right. But listen very carefully. God didn't just command for her to do that. God has commanded for us to do that. And that's hard, isn't it? Somebody to do something that vile. I knew of a pastor once. His, his wife had been kidnapped and just unspeakable things done to her. She was killed in the process. Their unborn child was killed in the process. Just astronomical. Again, his testimony was for years he dealt with anger. Until he too went to the prison and won him to the Lord. He said, he's like my brother now. Because he is his brother in Christ. And there's people in my life that have hurt me. That boy, there's been times it's taken everything I could. But God has commanded me to show love and grace to them. So guess what? I have done. And you know what you find out when you do that? That God gives you a love for them that can only truly come from him. That's hard, isn't it? And so, I think perhaps with all that being said, that the best thing that we can do at this point is simply to be reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter number 5. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. 
For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I say, well, how is it that this text is asking us to be perfect like our Father which is in heaven, in that He has shown love, mercy, and grace even to those who were His enemies? And my friends, He's called for us to do the exact same thing. And if we can get that, then we'll understand what Jonah was trying to tell us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, again, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that it's like a mirror that we look into and it shows us the things that need to be corrected. The sin that needs to be repented of. The mindsets that need to be changed. The things that need to be adjusted. But Lord, just recognizing the problem is not enough. But the book of James says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, I'm mindful that learning a text like this, it's easy to say, yeah, we need to do that. And then to go on our way and nothing ever truly change. So Lord, I pray for each and every person here this morning that we'd be willing to get on our face before You, surrender before You and say, God, if You love them and You want to show Your grace to them, then so should I. But Lord, I know that's hard. So Lord, I pray that again, we would call out for help to you. And Lord, that you would help us to love others the way you have loved us. So Lord, I do pray that you bless this time of invitation now. In Jesus' name. If you will, please stand. We are going to have a time of invitation. And the altars are open as the music begins to play.